Now, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, verse 62. And I'll be reading from Matthew 27, verse 62, through Matthew 28, verse 15. But before we hear God's word, if you've been Good Shepherd on Easter Sunday before, you know what one of my favorite parts is. And so we are going to do it again. Where I say, Christ is risen, and you all respond, he is risen indeed. And kids, as always, I'm giving you permission to use your outdoor voices inside. We want to make the gates of hell tremble. So you need to be loud, okay? So we're going to say it three times. I say Christ is risen. You say he is risen indeed. All right. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Let us pray. Father, there is no better news in all the universe than that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. So I pray that as we once again hear this glorious news, that it would not fall upon dull hearts and deaf ears, but that you will awaken us once again to how marvelous it is that you sent your only begotten beloved Son into this world to take on human flesh, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins, and to rise again on the third day, that when he comes again, we may rise with him to everlasting life. We ask for your help now as we hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Matthew chapter 27, verse 62 through chapter 28, verse 15. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. 
For I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. For he has, he has risen as he said. Come, see quickly the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with great, with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Because there are many different religions, philosophies, scientific theories, political positions, and moral standards, one might think there are many stories competing in this world to tell the truth about reality. But there are really only Two stories circulating in this world. There is the true story, and there is the lie. For there are only two spirits at work in this world. The Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of truth, leading his people into all truth. And the Spirit of the devil, the God of this world and father of lies, who is blinding and deceiving the world because there is no truth in him. Now, the lie does come in many different forms. For the devil doesn't really care what you believe as long as you do not believe the truth. He is as happy to deceive you through Hinduism as he is through Islam. He is as happy to deceive you through scientific materialism and moral relativism as he is through Satanism. For all of these, religions and isms have one common denominator, which is all that the devil cares about. They are a lie that leads you away from the one true God and blinds you to the surpassing worth and light and glory of Jesus Christ. All lies have this in common. They deny that Jesus is the Son of God who took on flesh, who died and rose again for the salvation of man. For Jesus is the truth. And so the gospel, the Christian story, which I am convinced is the true story, is all about Jesus. So while there is a lot 
to learn about Christianity. The depths of the gospel are infinitely deep. The heart of the story is the historical claim that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who took on human flesh, who died on the cross for sin, was buried, and rose again on the third day. So Paul tells the Corinthians, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That is either true or it is false. If it is true, then you are a fool not to believe and obey Jesus. If it is not true, then you are a fool to believe and obey Jesus. And as Paul says, your faith is futile and we are of all people most to be pitied. Everything, therefore, depends on whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection makes all the difference in the world. For Jesus' life and his death are meaningless, and they are worthless if he did not rise as he said he would. And so this morning, I'm going to... Consider with you the resurrection narrative I just read from Matthew 28, where the angel says of Jesus to the women who came to the tomb, he is not here. He is risen, as he said. There you have the declaration of the resurrection. And the spirit of truth would have you believe that the tomb was empty and Christ is risen. The father of lies would have you believe that the resurrection is a massive fraud. It's the biggest fraud that has ever been perpetrated in the world. There are two stories, and you hear both of them in our text. The question is, which one will you believe? And I pray you will believe the truth. So toward that, and I will consider the truth of the resurrection, the meaning of the resurrection, and the responses to the resurrection. First is the truth of the resurrection. And my contention here is simply that the angel's statement and the story of Jesus' resurrection is absolutely, without doubt, true. The tomb really was empty. Christ really is risen. That, at least, is the contention of Matthew, along with Mark, Luke, John, the apostles, over 500 other eyewitnesses, and billions of Christians for 2,000 years. And I don't believe that you can easily dismiss that claim as an obvious fantasy. 
For if you are going to do that, you need to provide a reasonable explanation for how Christianity rapidly spread, not only in Jerusalem and Judea, but throughout the known world after Jesus died. For Judea was an insignificant and relatively unknown province in the Roman Empire. And Jesus was a poor carpenter leading a band of uneducated fishermen, tax collectors, and women who was then crucified as a criminal. Now that in and of itself is not a story that spreads throughout the world and turns it upside down. Yes, Jesus claimed to be the Jewish Messiah, the one God promised would come and conquer Israel's enemies and establish an eternal kingdom. So you can understand why the Jews thought this was important. But no one outside of Judaism cared about Jewish prophecies. And even for the Jews, Jesus was not the first to claim to be this promised Messiah. In fact, in the, the decades leading up to Jesus, there were dozens of men who claimed to be the Messiah. Men who won a significant following. But then, after these men inevitably died, their followers would disperse and go home, and that was the end of the movement. However, when Jesus dies... He receives more followers than he ever had when he was walking the earth. Why? Because his followers claimed that he came back to life. And of course, you can think, well, it's easy to, to claim something fantastic has happened. That doesn't make it true. So how do you know that this claim is true? You know, because there were eyewitnesses to both his death and to his resurrection. See, there's only one way to know about an event that you didn't witness. This is true for any event. The only way to know about it is if people who did witness it tell you about it. And the only way to know about ancient history is for it to be written down. Well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote down what they or others witnessed, what they saw, what they touched and heard. And if you've read any ancient history, you know that these gospel accounts are written like any historical document of the time. They primarily rely on oral eyewitness accounts of the events. That's what historians cared about. So Matthew notes that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went early Sunday morning to see the tomb. Other gospel writers note that there were more women who went and that they were going because they wanted to anoint Jesus' dead body. So they were expecting to see a tomb with a corpse in it. They were not going looking for an empty tomb. Now, all of the gospel accounts agree that the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb and risen Christ were women. And that is very significant. 
It's significant because if at that time you were making up a story that you wanted everybody to believe, there is no way that you would make it depend on the testimony of a woman. Women were not considered reliable witnesses. Their witness, their testimony was not admissible in court. Years after this took place, there was a Greek philosopher named Celsus who was very opposed to Christianity, and he devoted a lot of time to refuting Christianity because he thought that the Christian religion was a threat to stable societies everywhere. And one of his main arguments that for him just clinched the fact that this was all made up was this very fact that women were the first eyewitnesses, because he wrote, everybody knows. Everyone knows women are hysterical. You can't trust a word they say. You see, if you're a feminist, you should be a Christian just to spite Celsus. So there is only one explanation for why the gospel writers would record that women were, first saw the empty tomb in the risen Christ. They would not make that up. They would only say that if that's actually what happened. But these women were not the only witnesses. For the angel commands them to go and tell the other disciples. And Paul tells us that the resurrected Jesus was seen not only by a handful of people, but by over 500 people. Now, again, if you're promulgating a lie, you want to keep the circle small so that you can control the narrative and make sure everybody's story agrees. The more people involved in a lie, the harder it is to maintain the lie. Furthermore, you notice in the Gospels and in Paul's writings that many specific names are given, even distinguishing between Marys that none of us would have known about otherwise. Why all of these specific names? Because, as Paul says, most of these people were still alive. These were receipts, as if to say, you can go and you can ask all these people whether or not I'm telling the truth. It might be easy to spread a lie after all the supposed eyewitnesses are dead, or if you're spreading the lie far away from where the supposed events took place. But the story of Jesus' resurrection first spread in the exact same place as his crucifixion. And you need to remember that Jesus was not an obscure man in Jerusalem. Everybody knew who Jesus was. The whole city, the, the whole region knew about him. Thousands of people had gathered to celebrate when he entered the city, and his crucifixion was public. Thousands of people had seen him die. Well, you might say it would be easy to spread a lie like this in, in those days because ancient Jews readily believed in supernatural things like this. They, they would believe anything. We, we know better now. We're, we're educated. But it is incorrect to say that ancient Jews would easily believe a story about a resurrection. Because the dominant and leading Jewish party at that time were the Sadducees, and they, they did not believe in physical resurrection. You notice in the Gospels that not even Jesus' disciples thought Jesus was going to rise from the dead. The ones who actually believed he was the Messiah 
didn't believe he would rise from the dead. Now, in Mark's gospel account, he records three instances when Jesus specifically says, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again on the third day. And repetition in the gospels tells you this is usually something that this is probably something that happened on a regular basis. It's not just that he mentioned this three times. He probably said this many times. And it it supported that this was common knowledge because the chief priests and the Pharisees go to Pilate because they even know that Jesus said he was going to rise on the third day. They had heard this story. That's why they want the tomb guarded. They don't want the disciples to steal the body and deceive the people. But the disciples aren't going to the tomb. It's the third day, and Peter and John aren't saying to each other, should we go check? It's, it's the third day. I mean, he did mention that. Should, should we go check? Nobody thinks Jesus is going to rise from the dead. Not his enemies, not his disciples. The women aren't going to find an empty tomb. They're going to anoint a corpse. So the Jews in Jesus' day were as skeptical of resurrections as we are today, just for different reasons. And yet the tomb was empty. Every story agrees on that. The body of Jesus has never been found. So either he rose from the dead or his disciples really did steal his body. That latter suggestion is the story the chief priests and had the guards spread, but that seems to me very unlikely. For you, you would have to convince me that the disciples who ran away in fear and denied ever knowing Jesus when he was arrested now all of a sudden had the courage to go and try and steal his dead body, which was a capital offense. You rob a grave, you die. And if his body was stolen, everyone knew who would have done it. It's not like the disciples could have pretended it wasn't them. And you are telling me then, too, that all of these guards were in such a deep sleep that they didn't hear when at least 12 men would have had to come to move this stone. The stone was such that you not only had to roll it, you would have had to lift it up to move it aside. That would take at least 12 men. And even if you convince me that the disciples really did do this, the guards really were that sleepy, you would have to explain to me what the point of stealing his body would be. You might say, well, the, the disciples wanted to steal the body so they could spread this story and then they would gain power. They didn't, they'd gain influence and followers and money. Well, if that was their motivation, boy, did that backfire. Because the 12 and other disciples were arrested, they were beaten, they were impoverished because they claimed that Jesus rose from the dead. According to church tradition, all of the apostles except John were killed. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. Andrew was crucified. Thomas was stabbed to death with spears. Matthew, who wrote this gospel account, was also stabbed to death. One James was killed with the sword. Another James was stoned and clubbed to death. 
Matthias, who replaces Judas, was burned. Simon and Philip also were killed. John was the only one who wasn't murdered, and that was because he was exiled. So you'd think that if these guys were spreading a lie that they knew was a lie because they stole his body, at some point they would have said, you know, I don't think this is actually worth it. This isn't going the way I thought it would go. And so again, I believe there is only one reasonable explanation for the spread of Christianity, and that is because Christ is risen. The women and other disciples saw the empty tomb. He is not here, the angel told them. But they also saw the risen Christ, for he is risen as he said. Have you ever thought why the angel came to roll away the stone? The angel did not roll away the stone to let Jesus out. Notice this, the stones rolled away. Jesus is already long gone. He rolled away the stone to let the first witnesses in. Come, see where he lay. He's not laying there anymore. The angel was giving them evidence. The resurrection is true. And it was verified by hundreds of eyewitnesses who died for what they saw and professed. Are you that committed to truth? Will you die for what you believe? Do you love truth or just whatever makes you feel good about yourself or gets you good things? You ought to care about the truth. And if you do, then you ought to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But not everything that is true matters to the point that it actually changes your life. So what is the meaning of the resurrection? Why does this historical event have spiritual and eternal significance? In other words, why should you care that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, the truth of the resurrection means that Jesus is who he said he is, and he did what he said he would do. Who did Jesus say he is? Well, he said that he is the Son of God and the Son of Man, to whom God has given all authority, that he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He said he is God who is one with the Father. He said he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father except through him. So there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. And what did Jesus say he came to do? He said he came to take away sin, to wash sinners clean from the stain of sin, to bear the, the curse and penalty of sin, to redeem and set free from slavery to sin, and so make peace with God. He said he came to give eternal life and rest, to comfort, heal, and restore. He said he came to conquer death and hell. He said he came to make his people children of God and to secure their eternal inheritance. 
He said he came to make all things new, to overthrow the curse and usher in the new heavens and the new earth where sin, Satan, sorrow, and all suffering will never be allowed to enter. Now, how does the resurrection vindicate Jesus and prove the truth of his word and his work? Well, if Jesus was not who he said he was, and if he didn't do what he said he would do, then God would not have raised him from the dead. If Jesus was delusional, then saying that he would rise on the third day wouldn't make it happen. And if Jesus was a wicked blasphemer, well, then the Father would not have accepted his sacrifice, and his wrath would not have been satisfied, and his justice would not have been vindicated. For who is it that raised Jesus from the dead? Well, it is the triune God. It is a Trinitarian work. So each person of the Trinity was making a declaration in the resurrection. The resurrection is the work of God the Father. For Paul says he received the gospel not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So when the father raised his son, he reaffirmed what he had declared at Jesus' baptism, saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Upon the cross, Jesus was held up as cursed by God, as bearing his wrath. But in the resurrection, the father declared that even in his death, Jesus was pleasing the father and obeying his will. And in raising the Son, the Father affirmed, therefore, that he accepted Jesus' sacrifice and that the work of redemption was indeed finished as Jesus said it was on the cross. See, when the Father had finished his work of creation through the Son, he had looked upon creation and said, this is very good. Well, the resurrection is the Father's declaration that the Son's finished work of redemption is likewise very good in His eyes. Sin was atoned for. The Father's wrath and justice were satisfied. In the resurrection, Jesus was confirmed as the Lamb of God who really did take away the sin of the world. The resurrection is also the work of God the Spirit. For Paul says Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And Paul refers to the spirit as the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. So in the resurrection, the Spirit revealed himself now as the Spirit of Christ, the one whom Jesus had received in full measure. He declared that Jesus is the one who has the Spirit and who can give the Spirit. So the Spirit will gladly go wherever the Son sends him and will gladly do whatever the Son sends him to do. So Paul professes in Romans 8, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The Father raised the Son, the Spirit raised the Son, but the Son also raised the Son. As I said on Good Friday, that Jesus died because Jesus 
wanted to die to give his life. So you may say that Jesus raised Jesus from the dead. He said he would rise on the third day with confidence because he knew he had the power to do whatever he said. For he has told us that his works are the Father's works. He does whatever he sees the Father doing. So if the Father raised the Son, that means the Son raised the Son. And Jesus said, I am the life. And of his life, he said, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So in his resurrection, Jesus was confirming his identity, his power, and his authority. Why then should you care that Jesus is risen from the dead? Because if Jesus is risen from the dead, it means that Jesus is your Lord. He has authority to judge the living and the dead. Indeed, as Pastor Ryan will preach this evening, Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so he has the authority to condemn, and he has the authority to forgive. The resurrection is the announcement of Christ's lordship, which means you ought to give your life and worship to him. But you should also care that Jesus is risen from the dead, because it means he is your savior. The resurrection is the announcement of man's salvation and creation's redemption. It therefore means that your sins and your failures, even your worst ones, do not have to define you or determine the rest of your story. Sin will not be the last word about you when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. If he is who he said he is and he did what he said he would do, then he has the authority and power to take away your sin. If Christ is risen, you can be forgiven. You don't need to wallow any longer in the guilt and shame and filth of your sin. By faith in Christ, the resurrection means it's gone. The resurrection is the declaration of forgiveness. Do you notice when Jesus sends the women to tell the disciples, he says, Go tell my brothers. That's beautiful. He says, go tell my brothers, not go tell those cowardly traitors who all abandoned me. No, when he calls them brothers, he announces they're forgiven. My resurrection is their redemption. I love in a, another gospel account, it even specifies, go, go tell my brothers, and tell Peter, would you specifically tell Peter, I'm alive, he can come and see me. Even Peter, who denied Jesus three times at his death, was welcomed into fellowship with the resurrected son. Because the resurrection is the declaration of forgiveness. And this also means that sin, Satan, sorrow, and all suffering will not be the last word in this world. The story has a happy ending. The resurrection, therefore, not only means forgiveness, it means hope. 
just hope of newness and of justice, of peace and of joy and beauty and goodness and pleasure. The resurrection means the hope of everything that is frightening, that is ugly, that is sad and painful will be banished forever. No more will you have to fear the darkness that is in this world or that is in your own heart. No more will our children be murdered in wombs or when they go to school. No more will there be rape or betrayal, adultery or oppression, corruption, war, poverty, famine, starvation, sickness, mental illness, depression, tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, floods. It'll all be gone. No more will there be fear and sleepless nights. No more will there be loss and death. No more will there be sin. The resurrection means the title of the final chapter is eternal life with Christ. It means your story ends with a new beginning of an eternal weight of glory. The resurrection is true and it has eternal meaning and significance. So how then should you respond? Well, in our text, you see two responses. You either believe or you deceive. You are either a, a truth professor or you are a truth suppressor. For there are two great commissions in Matthew 28. Both come in light of the resurrection. The first great commission is given by the chief priests. They were concerned that Jesus' disciples would steal his body and deceive the people, saying that he had risen. So they ask Pilate for guards, and Pilate is fed up with them at this point, says, you have your own temple guards, you take them and you go, you make the tomb as secure as you can. And I have to believe that that was one of those moments where, as Psalm 2 says, God laughs and holds the nations in derision as they plot against him in vain. Because if death and the devil can't keep Jesus in the tomb, if the curse of the law can't keep Jesus in the tomb, then I'm sorry, a sealed stone and a band of temple guards cannot keep Jesus in the tomb. But these chief priests who claim to be concerned about spreading deception are indeed the chief deceivers. For while the temple guards didn't see the resurrected Christ, they did experience the earthquake, the angel, and the empty tomb. And they tell the chief priests about this. So even though the chief priests don't see Jesus, they know the tomb is empty, and they know that the disciples didn't steal the body. Again, if they, they thought there was any evidence they could pin on the disciples, they would have done it. They know that the disciples did not steal the body. So what did they do with this evidence? Well, they suppressed the truth that it revealed. You notice the, the problem isn't, they, they don't think the guards are lying. 
they may very well have believed that Jesus rose from the dead. They just didn't care. Remember what the chief priests, scribes, and elders had said to Jesus, mocking him on the cross. They said, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. Liars. They didn't believe him when he came out of the tomb. They wouldn't have believed him if he came down from the cross. So instead, these liars continue to promulgate lies. You need to be clear. Unbelief is not born from a lack of evidence. Unbelief is born from willful blindness. When it meets truth, it fights back with lies. It tries to, to push the truth out of sight, to hide it in darkness so it can't see. If you do not believe that Christ is risen from the dead, it is because you are deceiving yourself. The chief priests exchange the truth for a lie, and then they commission the guards to go and tell others the lie. See, there's two commands in this chapter to go tell. You are obeying one commission or another. You are either deceiving yourself and others, or you are believing and professing the truth. And let me be clear that once again, if you think, well, no, I'm not doing either. I'm, I'm just in that state of indifference. I'm apathetic. Apathy is not neutrality. Apathy is just another form of atheism. If you believe the resurrection is a lie, then you should be hostile to it. If you believe it is the truth, then you should give your life for it. You should either be opposing or promoting Christianity. You can't be indifferent to it. Apathy is affectional and practical atheism. What I mean is that you may not deny God in your mind or with your lips, but if you are apathetic, then you are denying him with your heart and with your life. You may think and say there is a God, but you do not love and live as if there is a God. There's more than one color of atheism. But there is another response in commission. The women are not indifferent. They are not hostile. They are clearly affected because the angel has to tell them, don't, don't be afraid. And then, after telling them Jesus is risen, he commands, go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Clearly, they believed the angel because they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. They're filled with fear and great joy, with wonder and happiness. This was the most amazing and glorious news they had ever heard. And their faith is evidenced by their feet. They run to tell others about it. You see, to believe is to obey. And so the women's eager obedience demonstrates their earnest belief. And as they're running... They see Jesus, and at the mere sound of his hello, they fall at his feet, and they worship him. That's how you respond to the risen Christ. 
On one hand, there are deceivers and truth suppressors. On the other, there are believers and truth professors. Which one are you? Do you actually believe that Christ is risen? And does your love and your life emanate this belief? See, if you do, if you are filled with fear and great joy, then you must tell others. Silence is not an option. How could you possibly be silent about this? How are we not just bursting to tell everyone we see on the street, Christ is risen? I wish this was the way we greeted everybody, not just once a year on Easter Sunday, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. Brothers and sisters, this is how we should always greet each other. Because it's always true. And it changes everything. The tomb is empty and Christ is risen as he said. Believe and proclaim this truth to the world. But above all else, worship Christ, the risen King. For if Christ is risen, he is your Savior. And he is your Lord. He has saved you from false worship. He has restored true worship. So worship the one who was crucified, who died, who was buried, but who rose again on the third day. You know that he is your Lord because he lives. Paul had said, if Jesus is not risen, then your faith is in vain. But, he continues, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Not in theory, not in supposition. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So Christian, you know the end of the story. You may live with unassailable hope. Yes, there will be scary and painful parts to your story. But sin, Satan, sorrow, and suffering are not the last word. For Jesus is the beginning, and he is the end. So believe. Let hope rise in your heart, and do not hide this hope in your heart. Share it with the world, always ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. And here is the reason for your hope. Jesus is not here. He is risen, as he said. Let us pray. Father, I, I do ask that if there are any here who the God of this world is still blinding to the light of the glory of Christ, that you would speak light and open their eyes, that they may see him. And I pray for those that you have miraculously given this sight to, that we would go and tell everyone else what we see, 
that we would proclaim hope and joy and peace to this world, which means proclaiming Jesus. I thank you that this is true, that it is not a myth, it is not a fantasy, it is a fact. Give us grace to live in light of this fact. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.